0: I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence Based Hair Podcast. I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence Based Hair Podcast for the June 6th, 2022 issue. This is season two, episode number three. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy, and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect on how exactly all this new information ties in with everything we've come to learn in the past, and how this new information is going to take us into the future. I'll use various studies as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls, treatment tips, that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The first Monday of each month is dedicated to the topics of androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata, and today we're going to look at eight fascinating studies from the past month or two related to alopecia areata and androgenetic hair loss. We're going to begin with androgenetic hair loss and then move on to alopecia areata. We're going to discuss an interesting study looking at the use of oral minoxidil at 5 mg in males. How does it affect blood pressure? Very interesting study by colleagues in Brazil, and I really like this study. Then we'll look at whether adding topical minoxidil to a patient... Who is about to start oral minoxidil makes any difference. Interesting study from New York which suggests that really doesn't do much. Then we'll look at nail capillaroscopy. That's the use of your dermatoscope or trichoscope on the nail bed. We used capillaroscopy for looking at connective tissue diseases, lupus, dermatomyositis, scleroderma. Should we be using it for androgenetic hair loss? An interesting study suggests yes, and an interesting study shows us that androgenetic hair loss is a systemic condition. And I think we really need to focus our attention to that area as well as many other hair issues. Then we'll look at a study looking at dutasteride microneedling. Dutasteride mesotherapy is quite popular in many parts of the world. And this study looked at microneedling with dutasteride. And then we'll look at sleep quality in males with androgenetic hair loss. And we'll see that males with androgenetic hair loss may be at increased risk for various sleep abnormalities, including sleep apnea. Then we'll turn our attention to alopecia areata, and we'll look at a study from Poland, which suggests that patients with alopecia areata have endothelial dysfunction, or abnormalities of the blood vessels. Some really fascinating work, two years ago taught us that patients with alopecia areata are truly at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Heart disease of various kinds, strokes, high cholesterol, diabetes. And this study by Dr. Runika and colleagues is another one of the wonderful studies that this group has published, and it teaches us that You know, we really have to turn our attention to the systemic features of many hair loss conditions, especially alopecia areata. And it's been very slow for the world to adopt these changes, at least the hair loss community, but we really need to. Then we'll look at a study from New York showing that if a patient with alopecia areata is using tofacitinib and gets COVID-19, it may not be so critical to have them stop their tofacitinib We'll take a look at that study and then we'll look at a study which addresses the rising incidence of alopecia areata in children in the united states and a very nicely conducted study one of these huge studies using a huge database which convincingly tells us that alopecia areata is on the rise and gives us some fascinating epidemiologic information about who exactly is affected in the pediatric group the references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin by talking about oral minoxidil in males. Another nice study by Sanabria and colleagues from Brazil looking at the use of 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil in males. Are you using oral minoxidil? Are you using it in males, females? What doses are you using? Are you concerned about blood pressure issues? Well, low-dose oral minoxidil is increasingly used around the world, and it's increasingly used because it's effective. And by low-dose oral monoxidil, we mean anywhere from 0.25 milligrams to 5 milligrams. Anywhere in there usually would encompass the definition of low-dose oral monoxidil. In the 1970s and 80s, oral monoxidil was used for blood pressure problems at... 10, 20, 50 milligrams, rarely 100 milligrams. That's the blood pressure dose of oral minoxidil. The hair loss dose is 0.25 to 5. And males with androgenetic hair loss are typically treated with anywhere from 2.5 to 5 milligrams. If you look in the literature about oral minoxidil for blood pressure problems, it was a very difficult medication to use. It increased heart rate. It made people dizzy. It lowered blood pressure, it caused pleural and pericardial effusions, it caused fluid retention. But fortunately, those issues aren't very common with low-dose oral minoxidil. But the concern still arises, if we're using a blood pressure medication for treating hair loss, do we need to think about blood pressure? And the answer is, we need to think about it. But this very nice study tells us that blood pressure issues are not that common. We do occasionally get patients that are sensitive to oral minoxidil and they do get dizzy. And we do need to keep that in mind. But this study will be a study for the books that really reassures us that it's got pretty good safety profile. And so Sanabria and colleagues, which have done some very nice work with oral minoxidil type studies in the literature, they set out to conduct another study to determine if blood test results change with oral minoxidil use. Do blood pressure readings change? Do heart rate readings change over 24 weeks of study in males using 5 milligrams? So this isn't a study of females. This isn't a study using 1.25 or 2.5 milligrams. It's a study of 5 milligrams in males 60 and under. And so they assessed the lab test results and the blood pressure readings and the heart rate readings in males that were using minoxidil five milligrams at bedtime and at the start of the study they had patients use holter monitors and they measured blood pressure they measured heart rate they had them get lab tests and then they repeated these studies again at week 24 and there was 34 males age 21 to 58 who were healthy without any kind of cardiovascular disease that were included in this study four patients left the study two because of headache one because of swelling leg and facial edema and one for a reason unrelated to this and at 24 weeks 20 percent of patients said they had headaches three percent had vertigo dizziness three percent had swelling but shortness of breath and heart palpitations were not reported and symptomatic cardiovascular issues like i'm really dizzy were not observed About 60% of patients had hypertrichosis, or increased hair, and this is consistent with Sanabria's prior studies looking at the rate of hypertrichosis in oral minoxidil users. Really teaches us that males grow hair on the body, on the face, on the chest, on the back, on the arms with oral minoxidil, and we certainly need to tell patients that. But at 24 weeks, there were no changes in lab test results. Really reassuring. No changes in cholesterol, liver enzymes, sodium, potassium, creatinine, and glucose. It's really nice to use medications that don't change lab results. One patient had elevated blood pressure at week 24. Of course, we don't know if that's related to the medication. It's not uncommon for males to have elevated blood pressure. But none of the patients had hypotension or low blood pressure under 90 over 60 during their 24-hour Holter monitoring. Blood pressure was reduced. The key point is it really wasn't reduced much. The mean arterial pressure during wake hours at week 24 was reduced from 92.6 to 89.8. So very, very small reduction in blood pressure. The systolic blood pressure while awake was reduced from a mean of 125 to 122. Very, very small and somewhat clinically insignificant types of changes in blood pressure. The diastolic blood pressure while awake was changed from 76 to 74. And so somewhat insignificant clinical changes in blood pressure with oral minoxidil. Now, older patients were likely more likely to have a change in blood pressure, but it was still within the realm of fairly safe. But older patients were more likely to have those changes than younger patients. And we'll get back to why that's important in a minute. One patient did have tachycardia or elevated heart rate above 100 at week 24. So that's 3.3% of patients. So we need to keep that in mind. Doesn't necessarily mean that's a harmful thing for the patient, but that was observed on the Holter tracings. There was no change in mean heart rate in patients. There was no statistically significant increase in ventricular or supraventricular extrasystoles or extra beats. So that's important. But older patients were more likely to have extra beats. But there was no overall, no statistically significant change. This is a really wonderful study. It's a very much needed study in our field to reassure us that oral minoxidil is safe for healthy males under 60. Clearly, if we're going to use oral minoxidil, we need that good safety data for hair loss. We've got reasonable data from the 1970s and 80s about blood pressure issues and how we use it, but that's not what we do in the clinic. We use it at low doses, and so we need that safety data. And this is a very nice study. It tells us that oral minoxidil in males is well tolerated. Blood pressure does change, but it changes almost insignificantly. Occasional patient has tachycardia. That's just one of the 34 patients. When we think of this study, we have to keep in mind a couple of things. This is a study of healthy males under 60. It doesn't tell us about the safety of oral minoxidil if you're giving it to an 85-year-old male. You may not want to give it to an 85-year-old male. This wasn't a study of women. It wasn't a study of males with high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. This was a study of males without cardiovascular disease. And so the authors point out very nicely in their discussion that oral minoxidil can affect heart rate in very, very small percentage of males. It does lower blood pressure pretty insignificantly, but a little more likely in older males. Pretty good safety profile in males under 60, but if you're giving it to a male 65, 68 with cardiovascular disease, you certainly need to be aware of the possibility that it lowers blood pressure a bit, and by lowering blood pressure, it increases heart rate that's what happens to the human body when you lower blood pressure. Sometimes heart rate increases. And a higher heart rate increases demand on the myocardium or the heart muscle. So if you have heart disease, demand on the myocardium is not a good thing. So we may not want to be giving oral monoxidil to males with cardiovascular disease. Certainly we don't want to be giving 5 milligrams of oral monoxidil, But we have to remember that topical monoxidil is not really approved for males over 60 even though we use it commonly in males over 60 and we have to exercise caution in using even topical minoxidil in males with significant cardiovascular disease so it's a nice study that reminds us about some precautions about oral minoxidil but all in all good safety of oral minoxidil in males under 60. So we move on now to another study of oral minoxidil. When you're starting oral minoxidil, do you advise your patients to use topical minoxidil as well? Well, a study from New York by Klein and colleagues tells us that probably makes little difference to add on topical minoxidil. And so you're well aware that topical minoxidil is FDA-approved for treating androgenetic hair loss. We use it off-label for many other conditions. Telogen effluvium, alopecia areata, scarring alopecia, Many conditions we use topical minoxidil to tell hair follicles to grow. And oral minoxidil is increasingly used. And so the authors of a new study set out to compare the differences between patients using low dose oral minoxidil and patients using low dose oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil together. So these are patients that are about to start either topical minoxidil and oral minoxidil or oral minoxidil alone. So there was 117 patients in this study, 59% were female, 41% were male. And there was a whole variety of hair loss conditions that were being treated in these 117 patients. It wasn't one homogenous type of hair loss. 68% had androgenetic hair loss, 28% had androgenetic hair loss and telogen effluvium, 3% had androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. And of these 117 patients, also received topical minoxidil. So we have about half just receiving oral minoxidil and just over half receiving oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil twice daily. Of the oral minoxidil users, 18% were using 0.625 milligrams, which is a quarter of a tablet, a quarter of a 2.5 milligram tablet, 54% were using 1.25 milligrams, or a half a tablet. About a third were using a full 2.5 milligram tablet. And just 1% were using 5 milligrams. So that's important information to keep in mind. What are the doses that patients are using? We've seen in the prior study that it's not uncommon for males to be on 5 milligrams, but just 5... Milligram doses were used in 1% of patients in this particular study. So that's 48 males were using smaller doses than used in the prior study. Patients were assessed at three to six months follow up and then again at a six to 13 month follow up. What were the results? Does it make sense to also send the patient home with topical minoxidil if you're about to start oral minoxidil? Well, the answer is no. In this study, there was no statistical significant difference in the improvement in hair density or hair caliber in patients who used topical minoxidil with their oral minoxidil compared to patients that just used oral minoxidil alone. So it's a nice study, small study, but tells us that you know combination therapy doesn't seem to do much more than just using oral minoxidil alone. And so, we don't expect patients to get much more benefit from taking the time each day to apply topical minoxidil, at least in this study of 117 patients. It's a small study, but it's a nice study because there aren't studies like this in the literature. And one of the limitations is these patients were of various hair types, uh, hair loss types. We had androgenetic hair loss, we had telogen effluvium, we had alopecia areata. So it's difficult to tease apart the differences if the patient sitting in front of you tomorrow morning has just androgenetic hair loss, or just telogen effluvium, or just alopecia areata. These 117 patients had various hair conditions. It would seem generalizable, but it's hard to say that. Secondly, the patients in this study were using minoxidil solution twice daily, they weren't using the foam. We would expect the results to be the same with the foam. The data in the literature would suggest that the foam and the solution are pretty interchangeable, but the patients in this study were using topical minoxidil solution. And this study included males and females, so we're not really sure if it's generalizable to just females or just males. It would seem that it should be, but that data was not analyzed in this study. And we don't really know if really low doses of oral minoxidil would benefit from having add-on topical minoxidil. And so in this study, some patients were using 0.625, some were using 1.25, some were using 2.5. We don't really know if a patient using really low doses like 0.25 or 1.25 or 0.625 Are these patients a little more likely to benefit from topical minoxidil than someone using 2.5 or 5? We don't really know. There was only 18% of patients in this study that were using low, low doses, 0.625. And so we really don't know if those patients would benefit from topical minoxidil. This study would suggest no, they don't. But that subgroup analyses weren't done. And the study wasn't really big enough to power for that kind of data. And so what do you do if you have a patient sitting in front of you who's on topical minoxidil and oral minoxidil and says, I really hate using the topical minoxidil. Should I stop? Can I stop? I want to stop. Well, you might reflect on this study and say, you know what? I just read a study that suggests that topical minoxidil does nothing if you're using oral minoxidil. So I think you can stop. That's not really what this study was about. This study was about patients starting treatment de novo from day one, and should you add topical minoxidil day one to your oral minoxidil patients. So if you have a patient on both, this study suggests that mm, maybe you could stop topical minoxidil. It doesn't prove it, and that's not what this study was designed to do. And so if you're going to stop topical minoxidil in your oral minoxidil patients, we can't be 100% sure they're not going to shed. And if they do shed, it means the topical minoxidil is probably working. And so it's a helpful study in the, the oral minoxidil, topical minoxidil world. I really like this study, but there's a lot more questions that need to be answered in the future. And it would be nice to have studies that address just one type of hair loss, like androgenetic hair loss alone, chronic telogen effluvium alone, males alone, or females alone, to really give the clearest information. But a wonderful study, and I really like this, and it really will change my practice. We move on now to nail capillaroscopy. There's two parts of the body where you can easily see blood vessels in the body, see what blood vessels are doing. One is the eye. You can take an ophthalmoscope, look in the back of the eye and see what the blood vessels are doing. You can also take your dermatoscope and look at the nail folds to see the nail fold blood vessels. And that's called capillaroscopy. And we use capillaroscopy to look at a whole bunch of different blood vessel changes in dermatomyositis, which is an autoimmune disease in lupus which is an autoimmune disease, in scleroderma, which is another autoimmune disease. And the changes that we see in the blood vessels in the nail folds give us insight into the disease and and some prognostic features as well. And so I often look at nail fold capillaries and I take my dermatoscope and I look at the hair, look at the eyebrows, and then I look at the nails and patients say, what are you looking at? Well, I'm looking at your blood vessels in your nails because sometimes it gives me clues A fascinating study tells us that maybe we should be looking at blood vessels in the nails in our androgenetic hair loss patients. And this was a study in February 2022 from China, which is a very nicely conducted study. A variety of studies in the medical literature have shown us that androgenetic hair loss is very closely associated with a risk of heart disease and metabolic syndrome. It's pretty clear that males and females with androgenetic hair loss are at increased risk for metabolic syndrome. And in Season 1, Episode 1 of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, we talked about a a meta-analysis of three wonderful studies which suggested that patients with androgenetic hair loss are at significantly increased risk for heart disease and metabolic syndrome. But how exactly balding affects the microcirculation is not entirely clear. I described a study in Season 1, Episode 1, showing that in the course of androgenetic hair loss, these tiny, tiny blood vessels that feed the hair follicle, feed the dermal papilla, seem to disappear. And that may be mediated by TGF-beta. So there's a lot of data that suggests that, yeah, the microcirculation really is affected in balding. One of the ways to look at the microcirculation is to look at the nail fold capillaries. And so authors from China set out to look at whether there are changes in the nail fold capillaries in androgenetic hair loss. And they compared those changes to control patients. And in addition to looking at various changes in the nails, they looked at what proportion of the nail is abnormal. Is it a third of the nail? Is it none of the nail? Is it two thirds of the nail? Is it more than two-thirds of the nail. And so they had 78 men with androgenetic hair loss, and they compared the nail fold changes to 78 controls. The age of the male patients was 29 years, control group was 32 years, and there was no statistically significant difference in those ages. And so the authors described a whole bunch of different nail fold capillary changes that you can identify when you look at the nail folds With your dermatoscope. Torturous vessels, crossed vessels, ramified vessels, bushy, bizarre, avascular, micro hemorrhages, dilated vessels, giant vessels, disorganized vessels. So they did a very nice work describing these vessels that can occur. And they went about looking for these changes in the 78 males that were balding and the 78 controls. And some changes were more common in males with balding, including areas that were avascular, meaning blood vessels disappeared in the nail-fold capillaries. Bushy vessels, bizarre vessels, dilated vessels, and disorganized vessels were more common in males that were balding. Some of the other changes were not more common. And so this article is available free online with Creative Commons license, and you can see the reference in the show notes. And they have some wonderful nail fold capillary pictures. And the normal nail fold capillaries have these regular loops of the nail fold that look like hairpins. And bushy capillaries were more common in androgenetic hair loss, where you have these capillaries with many small branching limbs. Bizarre capillaries are those with abnormal morphology. Dilated capillaries are those with more than 20 micrometers in width. Disorganized capillaries are those with a complete distortion of the regular pattern. And avascular areas are those with two or more successive capillaries that disappear. These little hairpins are not seen. And those are the changes that were more common in androgenetic hair loss. Avascular areas, bushy areas, bizarre capillaries, dilated areas, and disorganized. And patients with androgenetic hair loss were more likely to have two-thirds or more than two-thirds of the nail fold being abnormal compared to males without androgenetic hair loss. The authors didn't find that capillary abnormalities seemed to differ according to the severity of androgenetic hair loss, But overall, males with androgenetic hair loss seem to have a greater proportion of avascular areas, bizarre area, bushy areas, dilated capillaries, and disorganized capillaries. And the authors propose that this kind of microcirculation injury might be more common in androgenetic hair loss and might be a feature of androgenetic hair loss. So we need more research in this area. It's a wonderful study which sets the stage for further studies. It's pretty clear that androgenetic hair loss is associated with systemic issues, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease. As I've said on episode one, males with balding are more likely to to have heart disease, heart attacks, strokes. Same is true with women. We haven't really incorporated this information into our clinical realm, despite 20 years of data. We're more or less ignoring much of this data in how we practice hair loss in the world, But we certainly need more research, and this is a valuable study which will find its place in the medical literature showing us that you see changes in the microcirculation in the nail folds, and I really like this study. We move on now to dutasteride microneedling. Are you using creative, off-label methods to get antiandrogens to your patients that are balding, especially your male patients? That don't involve traditional FDA approved methods. In other words, have you incorporated topical finasteride into your practice in an attempt to increase safety? Have you increased the use of mesotherapy with dutasteride? Have you increased the use of low doses, subtherapeutic doses of oral antiandrogens like oral dutasteride twice a week, three times a week? Are you doing things that are different than the traditional way, which is one milligram of finasteride daily or 0.5 milligrams of dutasteride daily? I think a lot of clinicians are. We're looking for ways to increase the safety of these antiandrogens. This study from Mexico looked at the use of microneedling with dutasteride. And so prior studies have shown that Dutasteride is a really valuable medication. In fact, it's the most effective treatment for male balding. 0.5 mg of oral dutasteride is better than 1 mg of finasteride. That data is pretty clear. And a lot of nice data has suggested that, wow, we can use dutasteride mesotherapy with pretty good safety. Some studies have looked at mesotherapy where we inject dutasteride into the scalp monthly And a very nice study by colleagues from Spain in 2017, Sacedo Corralo, showed that you can even do it every three months and maintain some pretty good results. And if you're not familiar with that study, you might want to look at it. It's a very wonderful study with mesotherapy with dutasteride. It's free online. References are in the show notes and showed that three months of mesotherapy with dutasteride every three months produce some pretty nice, nice results. So a new study from Mexico looked at whether we can microneedle the scalp and then put the topical dutasteride on the scalp at 0.01% and have patients achieve benefit. And so the authors performed a 20-week, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study of microneedling with dutasteride, 0.01%, compared to microneedling with saline. And this was microneedling with a 2.5 millimeter microneedle. There's 34 participants. The authors don't tell us how they were randomized. We assume that there's 17 in each group, but we don't actually know that. We just have to assume that that data was not presented in the study, but that's what we have to assume. So a small study, 17 in each group. Males aged 18 to 65 were recruited. They were randomly assigned to three sessions of either microneedling plus dutasteride or microneedling plus salt water. And they did this every four weeks. The authors looked at the results at weeks 16 and 20. So how did they do this study? Well, they first applied a topical anesthetic ointment for 45 minutes, then they washed it out, and then they did microneedling with a 2.5 millimeter microneedling pen dr pen model ultima a6 and i don't have any conflicts of interest with the dr pen model ultima a6 but the thing i'd like to point out is that it's a 2.5 millimeter microneedle so when you look at the microneedling literature it's all over the place 0.6 1.2 here's 2.5 And then after microneedling, there was 0.1% commercially available dutasteride as due to ox. 0.01% dutasteride was applied, or saline was applied, and patients were advised not to shampoo for 12 hours. Three dermatologists compared baseline photographs, and then photographs at week 16, to see if there's an improvement. The primary endpoint was the improvement. Secondary endpoint was... Were there changes in hair density, thickness, quality of life, changes in vellus hair? Well, there was an improvement in 59% of patients using the microneedling dutasteride protocol and in about 18% of those using the microneedling saltwater protocol. And this was statistically significant at 004 And there was a slight improvement in hair thickness, hair density as well in the dutasteride microneedling group compared to the saltwater microneedling group. So it's a small study, 17 patients in each group. P-values are small, 0.04, but nevertheless, they're significant. I think this is a, a nice study, which really sets the stage for further study. I think that we really need larger studies. The thing about studies of 17 patients and statistical analysis on 17 patients is that if you get one or two differences in each study arm, the results sway very quickly from statistically significant to statistically insignificant and vice versa. And so it's a it's a nice study. I, I really like this study because it shows us that Maybe we have other protocols that we can do besides mesotherapy, but the improvements here are statistically significant, but they're small, and the p-values are just under 0.05. So, nice study, sets the stage for further studies, and I will certainly stay tuned for microneedling antiandrogen treatment protocols in the future. But I really think we need larger studies. The authors didn't comment on sexual dysfunction, mood changes with dutasteride microneedling. They didn't mention any lab value changes. That wasn't studied in this particular study. Nevertheless, it opens the door for more studies. So from dutasteride microneedling, we look at sleep quality. Do you ask about sleep in your patients? I certainly ask about sleep. I think poor sleep is a risk factor for a lot of things. I think it increases the risk for scalp symptoms, scalp dysesthesias. I think poor sleep certainly has an impact on androgenetic hair loss based on studies that we've seen in the past. There's a little bit of data which suggests that anti-androgens may very slightly increase the risk of sleep apnea. And so I think we need to ask about sleep in our patients. We spend a third of our life sleeping. And so it makes sense when we're talking with patients that we ask about their life. And why not ask about a third of their life And rather than ignore a third of their life? I think that just makes sense. But a very nice study in sleep and breathing. I don't very often dig into the journal Sleep and Breathing. A very nice study in sleep and breathing from April 2022 looked at sleep quality in men with androgenetic hair loss. And prior studies have tried to look at the relationship between sleep and male balding. And I'd like to remind you about two studies if you're not familiar with them. Bacon colleagues in 2019 showed that males with sleep apnea who had a family history of balding were more likely, seven times more likely, to have male balding themselves. A 2020 study by Yi and colleagues showed that males with more severe patterns of balding were more likely to have a range of sleep disturbances. And so, this study in sleep and breathing used a case control design to look at sleep issues in males with balding compared to controls. And study participants completed a standardized questionnaire, including the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality index which is a, a self-reported questionnaire which looks at sleep quality sleep latency sleep duration various sleep disturbances whether you use medications and whether you have any dysfunction in your daytime life they also looked at the epworth sleepiness scale which looks at daytime sleepiness of patients and they used the stop bang questionnaire s-t-o-p-b-a-n-g questionnaire which is a questionnaire for sleep apnea where you ask patients, do you snore loudly? Can someone hear you in another room? That's the letter S. Are you tired during the day? Letter T. Has someone observed you snoring? Letter O. Do you have high blood pressure? P. Do you have a BMI above 35? M. Are you older than 50 years of age? A. Is your neck more than 16 inches or 40 centimeters? N. And uh, is your gender male G? So that's a stop-bang questionnaire to identify risk factors for sleep apnea. And so there was 446 participants in this case-controlled study. 223 were androgenetic hair loss patients. 223 were controls. Average age was 54 in the AGA group and 54 in the control group. So what were the results? Well, the rates of high blood pressure were higher in androgenetic hair loss patients than controls, and this was statistically significant. There was no differences in the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, this 19 item questionnaire between androgenetic hair loss patients and controls. There's no difference in the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. However, stop bang scores, that sleep apnea score, Of five or more, which is a high risk for having sleep apnea, males with balding were more likely to have a score of five or more. And this was statistically significant. And in multivariate regression analysis, where you try to tease out all factors and control all factors, it showed that males with balding were more likely to have high blood pressure than controls and more likely to have a stop bang score of greater than five or risk factors for sleep apnea the authors went on to look at differences in mild balding, moderate balding, and severe balding patients. And they showed that males with severe balding were more likely to have three sleep abnormalities compared to males with less severe balding. And that is more likely to have a total sleep time less than six hours, more likely to have a Pittsburgh sleep quality index above five, And three times more likely to have sleep apnea risk factors, high risk factors, or a stop bang score above five. So the conclusion here is that males with androgenetic hair loss are more likely to have sleep disturbances and more likely to have these risk factors for sleep apnea. More likely to have high blood pressure than controls. We need to be thinking about sleep apnea and sleep in our androgenetic hair loss patients This is especially important in males that are obese, above 50, with high blood pressure, um, and and who are tired. And so it doesn't take much to get a score of 5 or more. And so it's helpful to know the Stop Bang score. Write down your page on a piece of paper, S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G, and ask your patients, do you snore loudly? Does someone hear you in the other room? Are you tired during the day? Has anyone heard you snoring? you have high blood pressure what's your weight is your bmi above 35 are you older than 50 what's your neck size when you go buy a shirt or let's measure it now and are you male that is the stop bang criteria and it's a helpful thing to know about send your patients off for testing the fact that they have sleep apnea doesn't necessarily mean it's related to their balding but it certainly may be those studies are really needed But sleep apnea affects people's lives, it increases high blood pressure, it increases cardiovascular disease, and if you identify someone with sleep apnea, you might change their life dramatically, and so it's helpful to know this concept and ask about it. We don't really fully understand this relationship between sleep apnea and balding, but perhaps these episodes of apnea and this poor sleep is driving a type of inflammation which is not good for balding. So for an androgenetic hair loss, we move on now to alopecia areata, and we talk about endothelial dysfunction. Are you convinced of the data that androgenetic hair loss is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease? Are you convinced of the new data that suggests that scarring alopecia, like lichen planopilaris, increases the risk for metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease? What about alopecia areata? well, pretty good data I'd like to remind you of today, and then share a new study from my colleagues in Poland. Very nice study. I really like this study. I often really enjoy Dr. Runika's work in alopecia areata and many other areas of hair loss medicine, including trichoscopy. And this is another really nice study by Dr. Waskiel Bernat and colleagues. And we've reviewed many of Dr. Waskiel Bernat's studies here on the evidence-based podcast in the past so a landmark study in 2020 suggested that patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease and i think this study came as a surprise this is dr conic and colleagues study from the cleveland clinic and it showed us that patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for high blood pressure high cholesterol obesity diabetes metabolic syndrome coronary artery disease atrial fibrillation and stroke and it really takes a bit of pause to really reflect on that and so it may be worthwhile pausing and rewinding whether you're listening on youtube or listening on your favorite podcast channel but patients with alopecia areata seem to be at increased risk for high blood pressure high cholesterol obesity diabetes metabolic syndrome coronary artery disease atrial fibrillation and stroke And when we're treating alopecia areata in the clinic, we don't often talk about high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, coronary artery disease, atrial fibrillation, and stroke. But I think we should be. That's going to take us a while before that incorporates into the clinic, but it's pretty clear it's relevant. And so authors from Poland, Dr. Waskiel Bernat and colleagues, last author, Dr. Rudnicka, Dr. Lydia Rudnica set out to determine if endothelial dysfunction is a part of alopecia areata. Do these linings of blood vessels have relevance in alopecia areata? And there's some pretty cool devices in the cardiovascular literature, in the heart clinic, where you can hook these devices up, where you measure blood pressure and you put these probes on fingers And you see how blood vessels change when you, when you shut off the blood supply with a tight, tight blood pressure cuff. You leave it there for five minutes and then you open it. You can use this, you can, you can hook it up to a computer that tells you how stiff the blood vessels are and how accommodating they are to bringing blood flow back into the arm. And that's what the authors did in this study. They studied 52 patients with alopecia areata and 34 controls and they use the endopat 2000 device it's one of these fancy devices where patient sits in a chair you squeeze their arm with a blood pressure cuff you put this probe at the end you shut off blood supply to the arm for a short time and then you release the blood pressure cuff and zoom the blood goes back into the arm and you measure various tracings about how the blood vessels respond to these treatments and you can measure endothelial dysfunction and you can measure arterial stiffness. And the computer spits out these numbers. You can get this reactive hyperemia index, or RHI, the endoscore, and you can measure arterial stiffness with the AI, or the augmentation index. And so by calculating the RHI, doctor Waskiel Burnett and colleagues showed that patients with alopecia areata were more likely to have endothelial dysfunction. 42% of patients with alopecia areata had an RHI score of less than 1.67, which is the cutoff for endothelial dysfunction. 42%, and that compared to just 12% of controls. And overall, the mean RHI, reactive hyperemia index, was less in alopecia areata compared to controls, suggesting that there is endothelial dysfunction in alopecia areata patients didn't seem to differ according to hair loss severity, according to the SALT score. And there was no difference in this augmentation index or this measure of blood vessel stiffness. And so this RHI is a predictor of cardiovascular disease. The reason heart doctors use this simple technique is they have patients sit in the chair. They put this probe on their arm and their finger And it gives them an idea about future heart disease risk. It's a real simple technique. It's a powerful technique, but it gives information about heart disease risk in the future. And this study suggests that 42% of patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for heart disease. It's a really nice study and really fuels us to be thinking about this. And as Dr. Waskil Burnett point out in the paper, should we be screening patients? The answer is yes. But the thing we need to remember is we've known data about heart disease risks for androgenetic hair loss for 20 years. We don't talk about it much. We don't do anything about it. And so the answer is yes, that this data is clear, that patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for heart disease. Patients with lichen planopilaris appear to be at increased risk for heart disease. Patients with androgenetic hair loss, whether male or female, are at increased risk for heart disease, Do we need to do something about it? Yes. Are we doing anything about it? Not really. And so I really hope that we do, and I hope this study fuels further studies. This this is a wonderful study. I really think that patients with androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, lichen planopilaris, need their blood pressure checked, their cholesterol checked, their blood sugars checked. They need to be encouraged to exercise. They need to be encouraged to eat well. They need to be encouraged to incorporate physical activity into their life. They need to be Encouraged to do all the things that we can do to reduce heart disease. From endothelial dysfunction, I think I could talk a lot more on that, but for the sake of time, we will move on. We move to tofacitinib. Tofacitinib in alopecia areata patients. And what do we do when a patient with alopecia areata who uses tofacitinib rings the clinic, calls the clinic, and says, I was just diagnosed with COVID 19? Well, in the early part of the pandemic, we would generally advise patients on immunosuppressants to maybe get off the immunosuppressants. And this study looks at whether really that's good advice or not. So tofacitinib is a JAK inhibitor, a JAK-I or a jak whatever you want to call it. It inhibits JAK-1 and JAK-3 and to a lesser extent JAK-2. And it's an off-label treatment for alopecia areata. The JAK inhibitors are among the most effective treatments for advanced alopecia areata. It's pretty clear the JAK inhibitors increase the risk for infection. They increase the risk for viral infections, especially shingles, herpes zoster. Increase the risk for bacterial infections. It increases the risk for fungal infections. So we need to be thinking infections. And a great amount of attention is focused on shingles and COVID-19 infections. So what should we do if patients get these viruses? Well, standard of care in the past has been to have patients stop. If you get shingles, stop. New data is emerging showing that, you know, maybe we don't need everyone to stop if they get shingles, that there are some patients that do really well, especially if they don't have shingles on certain areas like the eye and other areas, but maybe not everyone needs to stop. And the same is emerging with tofacitinib. Maybe everyone with COVID-19 doesn't need to stop. It had been the standard of care, but one of the reasons we're starting to wonder Maybe we don't need to have patients stop their tofacitinib. Is baricitinib, the cousin or the sibling, is now emerging as a treatment for COVID-19? We've learned that baricitinib, the JAK inhibitor baricitinib, is actually helpful to reduce the risk of hospitalization and reduce the risk of adverse events. And so in November 2020, the FDA gave emergency use authorization to use baricitinib with remdesivir for COVID-19. And last month, May 11th, 2022, baricitinib received FDA approval for treating COVID-19 in select situations. And so if the cousin or the sibling has FDA approval to treat COVID-19, do we need to stop it if the patient is using it for alopecia areata? And what about tofacitinib? Well, authors from New York, Yusuf and colleagues set out to retrospectively evaluate if patients using oral tofacitinib, 10 milligrams twice daily, had worse clinical outcomes than, than control patients. So they found 73 patients in the charts who had alopecia areata and COVID. 29 were using tofacitinib and 44 were not using tofacitinib. And interestingly, None of the patients who were using tofacitinib had worse deterioration by staying on tofacitinib, hospitalization, oxygen requirements, ICU. And in the patients that weren't receiving tofacitinib, five out of the 44 had more severe outcomes, hospitalizations, including the use of nasal oxygen, intubation, a complicated ICU course, so it's a small study, but the authors point out here that in this small study, in their best attempt to control for various factors, that patients using tofacitinib didn't really have worse outcomes than those who weren't using tofacitinib. And so it's, it may not be the standard of care to say that everyone with alopecia areata who has COVID-19 infection, who's using tofacitinib, needs to stop their tofacitinib. And certainly, the pandemic just started two years ago. Two years and two months. And so there is no standard of care. And so if you want to talk about standard of care, this is not a subject to be talking about standard of care. The pandemic is a new thing in our world. So there's expert opinion only. There's no standard of care. But the expert opinion had been in the early days to stop tofacitinib. The expert opinion now would be pretty varied, that it would seem like maybe in some patients with certain situations, we don't need to stop tofacitinib if they get COVID-19. More data is needed. I think it needs to be taken on a case-by-case basis. So there's no universal recommendation that if you have alopecia areata and COVID-19 and you're taking tofacitinib, you get to stop. It needs to be taken on a case-by-case basis. I think the authors are wise in this study and their discussion to really point that out and exercise caution, but we probably don't need universal stopping in all patients. And finally, a study from the pediatric literature looking at the incidence and prevalence of alopecia areata in children. A really nice study from JAMA Dermatology in May. So the authors set out to determine the prevalence and incidence of alopecia areata. It was a study using this super large database, PEDSnet database, which looked at five children's hospitals in the United States from January 2009 to November 2020. So these computer databases are wonderful because they really house information about large numbers of patients. And what is considered large number of patients? Well, in this study, 5,409,919 patients of which there was 5,800 children with alopecia areata. And so they dove into this database and they got some pretty good numbers. 2,398 children had follow-up for 12 months or more, and they used that data to be able to calculate changing incidence of alopecia areata over time. So the mean age was nine years of age. 56% of patients were female 41% of patients were white, 23% Hispanic, 19% black, 6% Asian. So the overall prevalence of alopecia areata was 0.11%. And what was so interesting is that the prevalence of alopecia areata changed over time from 0.04% in 2009 to 2019, being 0.08 percent it dipped a bit in 2020 but the alopecia areata appears to be becoming more common in children and so i think that's important because there's been a lot of debate in the literature about is alopecia areata really becoming more common some studies in adults suggest yeah maybe it is some studies have suggested that mm, i don't think so but here's a study which suggests in a pretty large database that seems to be becoming more common and so the overall incidence rate over this 11-year period was calculated to be 13.6 cases per 100,000 person-years. The peak rate in children was six years, and it was a bell-shaped curve. So six-year-olds are more likely to develop alopecia areata than a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. And so it's a bell-shaped curve. Other studies have suggested it's nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds that are more common, so it varies, but the study was six-year-olds. The rates were higher in female patients than in male patients, higher in girls than boys, by about 22% higher. Even though the database had more white children, the actual incidence of alopecia areata varied by race and was more common in Hispanic children, followed by Asian children, followed by black children, and the incidence rate in white children was the least. So it's a really nice study. It's a valuable study. It's a huge study which allows us to pull some pretty good data. And it shows us that alopecia areata is probably increasing. There's a higher incidence in Hispanic children, black children, and Asian children than white children. And so it really helps develop some real important epidemiologic information for which to base further studies and, and to really better understand this disease. And it captures this doubling of alopecia incidence over this 10-year period. And if rates are doubling, the question that gets asked is why? Why is alopecia areata becoming more common? many autoimmune diseases are so really valuable and that's it for this week i want to thank you for joining me for this first monday of the month of june today we've talked about oral minoxidil in males at five milligrams showing good safety in terms of its effect on blood pressure heart rate and lack of changes in blood test results we showed that if you're about to start oral minoxidil in your patient adding on topical minoxidil probably doesn't do much at least in this study of 117 patients we talked about nail fold capillaroscopy and how patients with androgenetic hair loss probably have a greater chance of avascular areas by capillaroscopy bushy areas bizarre areas dilated blood vessels and disorganized blood vessels we talked about dutasteride microneedling in a small study of 17 patients in each group which showed that due microneedling helps androgenetic hair loss in some patients and we showed that males with balding are probably at increased risk for sleep apnea we looked at endothelial dysfunction in alopecia areata a nice study by dr waskiel burnett and dr lydia runica from poland showing that patients with alopecia areata are at risk for heart disease and the data is pretty clear in that study We showed that tofacitinib may not need to be stopped in every single alopeciariata patient who gets COVID-19. And that was a study of patients using tofacitinib at 10 milligrams twice daily, so pretty high dose. And their outcomes were not worse in that small study. And we showed a study using a very large PEDSnet diet database in the U.S. that the incidence of alopecia areata is rising, it's becoming more common over that 2009-2019 to 2019 study period. Why is that? We don't know. The highest risk was in six-year-olds for alopecia areata and it had a bell-shaped curve. So thanks again for joining me, I always welcome your questions and concerns. We are available at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Our team does review all emails, but we're not always able to get back to everyone but we certainly appreciate your emails that come in and we take your suggestions and comments seriously. So thank you. We're back next week for the second Monday of the month of June, and that's a Monday which focuses on the four Ts. Telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on Evidence-Based Hair.